welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. Today I'm joined with Catherine Sharp from Apocalypse Farm and Clem Sanderson from the Soil Association. We're going to chat about regenerative agriculture and the role that this model can have in creating a sustainable local food system here in the Highlands. So thanks very much, Catherine, for joining us this morning on the Highland Good Food Podcast. You are new to farming, is that right? I'm sort of new to farming. I've I've had a farm of my own for two years now, but I've been in farming for about 10 years. So I'm sort of a new lone farmer. And are you new to the Highlands, relatively speaking? Yeah, I've been here for three years. So the farming I started with was very, very different farming because I was spent seven years on a very small city farm in London. So I sort of feel new to like rural farming, but yeah, loving it. <laughs> That's really brilliant. So, okay, so you were in London and now you're in the yeah. Highlands. So tell us a little bit about that journey and how you ended up up here being a farmer in the Highlands. So when I moved down to London, I was looking for a new career and I started volunteering at my local city farm and just totally fell for it. Yeah, I was like, right, I know what I want to do now. Um, and I, I volunteered there for a couple of years and then I got a job there. As time went on, I was reading more and more about permaculture and soil health, holistic management, regenerative farming, agroforestry, all those things that people are starting to get into and realised that I just couldn't farm the way I wanted to on a tiny little patch in London. And so when I left there, it was with a view to you know going off to do some like proper farming in the countryside and being able to implement all these things that I'd been reading about for years but hadn't been able to implement at all and my parents were both in the highlands and because I didn't have anywhere to live or any money coming in and anything like that I went to stay with them for a bit and started volunteering at a couple of local crafts and farms um and I wasn't definitely sure I was going to stay in the Highlands. I was up for looking for land anywhere in the UK that I could afford, really. But yeah, just the more time I spent here, the more I just didn't want to leave. <laughs> um, so yeah, after about six months here, I started seriously looking for land. Then six months later, found properly, and here I am. <laughs> wow, that's super exciting, isn't it? What the listeners are missing out on here is your beautiful smile that just looks so excited <laughs> to be doing what you're doing and that that's brilliant and earlier you were speaking about how you'd been reading all the theory behind permaculture agroecology restorative agricultural practices but it'd be really good if you could elaborate on that a little and explain to the listeners what your motivations are and what you're hoping to achieve through the style and the model of farming that you've got in place. Yeah, sure. Well, I suppose it all started with, I did a permaculture course with one of my friends um, and it just sort of it opened my eyes to just a slightly different way of thinking about things. And um, then I started going on a few courses out with the farm in London um, so I went on a scything and grassland management course I went on a micro dairy conference I joined the pasture fed livestock association and sort of saw all of the amazing discussions that went on on their forum about all the benefits to livestock soil ecology from doing well-managed grazing and read Alan Savory's book about holistic management and it just all just made so much sense and at the city farm we were very much into using like celebrating everything we had even though it was very small making the most of everything even the tiniest little space we'd sow some flowers for the bees that we had there you know edge was very important on such a small scale we had a lot of edge and I always noticed how the animals would immediately run to the hedgerows or the trees that were in the pasture the fir- when they first went into that field so yeah it, a sort of like very slow snowballing of reading and experiences and learning from other people um So I suppose my main motivations when I moved here was to really celebrate what 
is here and what could be here like make the most of what there is not try and make it something it isn't meant to be celebrate nature work with nature use all of the wonderful tools that she's given us to improve the land to keep everything healthy like create abundance where there should be and yeah just I suppose just leave a little patch of ground a bit better than I found it that sounds like a lovely motivation to have so it would be really good if you could explain the model that you've got going at your farm and then and and just explain how you're bringing all those different theories together into a deliverable reality yeah sure well so having a patchwork habitat is one of the things I use so with my livestock I have a system but I also have other little pockets that are not part of that system and I sort of either leave to their own devices or manage them in a different way so I've got a little bit of natural regeneration on a little sort of heathery mound um, I've got a lovely beautiful um, blanket bog um, which are graze occasionally that's just oh, brings me so much joy I never really experienced bogs before I moved here and the bog is now one of my favourite places on the farm. I just love it. So I suppose the system I envisage one day having with my livestock is uh, very much based on agroforestry. So I've been planting lots of trees in shelter belts and hedges, and I will build on that year on year um, um, number of hedges and also adding in trees into the pasture. And that's so that the um, sheep and cattle can and forage from the trees because it's got loads of minerals in it and also a bit of free hedge trimming who wouldn't want that <laughs> and then also benefit from the shelter because I am in quite exposed spots so for winter like a sort of I call it like a green barn or a living barn it can be in the trees when there's horrible weather or when it's really sunny and also have the access to the trunks and the branches and the bark for like scratching on and looking after their skin and their coats and they can have a little nibble on the bark but not too much <laughs> which I suppose then leads into um, the system I'm running at the moment which will continue as there are more trees so I mob graze most of my sheep so they're 100% pasture fed and the main mob of sheep move either every well every one to three days it depends a little bit on the season and what's in their little paddock so I set up a little paddock with electric fencing and at the moment they're on two-day moves and so they eat what's there they trample a bit of it down and then they move on to fresh grass so it helps with grass growth you can grow a lot more grass that way because you're allowing the plants to recover before they're grazed again so it's all about the amount of rest time you're giving the plants so they get at least it depends again a little bit on the season in the springtime if it's, there's been enough rain you can have sort of at least three weeks rest and then as the summer moves on you're looking at longer and longer rest periods and anything that's grazed in the winter gets at least three months rest before it's grazed again um, and that just means the plants are stronger. Also, there's time for setting seed. So any like wildflowers that are in there can set seed as well. And it means that the sheep are not eating right down to the ground. So it helps with parasites. And they just really enjoy it as well. Like for me, it's a very satisfying way to look after sheep, particularly. I'm not mob grazing my cattle yet. Um, because of shelter and water infrastructure difficulties eventually that is the plan that I will be mob grazing them as well but not at the moment um, but yeah like I get to see my sheep every day they associate me with new grass and excitement really easy to check if anybody's not well or if there's any problems because they are either slow to go through the, to the new paddock um, you know exactly where they are I've got another group of sheep that aren't mob grazed because I made a mistake in my lamb management my first lambing and didn't castrate my top lambs because uh, I never used to and then trying to have them in a separate mob as soon as 
November hit, it was like there wasn't any fences anywhere. <laughs> so they've had to be put in a field far away from the ewes. Yeah, sometimes it takes me literally hours to find them all and check if they're all okay. Whereas with the ewes, I know exactly where they are, go down five minutes, they're free to the next paddock. And then it just takes me a little while to set up the fences for the next move. And yeah, I just, I love grazing them that way I think they love it too and it means that they're always getting the freshest grass possible uh, I don't always get it right with how fast we're moving through like I'm still very much learning not only the technique but how to implement it on my ground as well I belong to a couple of groups so I'm, I'm part of the uh, Soil Association Mob Grazing Field Lab so there's lots of us trying mob grazing with sheep and cattle around Scotland and it's brilliant to be able to chat about it and get advice from different farmers but my ground is different from everybody else's ground so it's also finding my own way through it uh, so yes lots of always lots of learning points to for next time round and next year but yeah it's just a really enjoyable way I find to farm sheep the exciting thing is that you probably will just be on a continuous learning journey every year. You know, you'll, you'll just continue to learn, won't you? Just to get the context, what area of land do you have and how many sheep do you have and how many cattle do you have? And it would also be really nice to sort of work out if this style of mob grazing has any impact on the number of livestock that you can have on a particular area. Uh, so I have, it's about 70 acres of high-ish ground. We're about a thousand feet in the hills of Abriachan. It's sort of gently sloping down towards Little Burn. A lot of it is wet ground, um, although I do have a few sort of stony crags going through and quite a lot of lovely little riparian areas along the burns. At the moment, I have 30 ewes and I've got, 17 hogs that I've kept from my first lambing that I'll be breeding this year as well so that'll be almost 50. 50 ewes is about where I'm that's sort of where I'm aiming to stay round about there but it will just mean that I'll be able to be a bit more selective about who I keep and who I don't as I have more hogs that I'm raising and then I've also got all of the lambs from this year and the I've still got a lot of my tup hogs as well they will hopefully be finished and ready for slaughter soon but it's my first experience finishing sort of more smaller more primitive breed of sheep um so I'm still also learning about that and what's yeah, the timings for everything so at the moment I'm running about around about 120 sheep they're not all in the mob because some of the boys are separate. I've also got a group of naughty sheep that don't respect the fences, so they're separate as well. Um, I don't know what to do about them at the moment. <laughs> um, and then I've got two cows and they had, they had their first calves this summer. So I've got uh, two calves as well. At the moment, they are just set stocked in a sort of a 14 hectare field. So they've got a lot of ground to roam and it sort of it varies between riparian area with lots of willows and heather and different wildflowers, sort of wet grass and up to sort of stony, dry pasture as well. So although I don't really want to be set stocking, I feel like, yeah, at the moment it's a necessary step to get where I want to go because they have got quite a big space. It's not having too much of an impact on the grass. I should also mention my lovely poultry. So I've also got um, ducks and geese that are part of my system too. So I went for ducks and geese because I'm on because uh, a lot of my ground is quite wet. I've got a lot of ditches, a lot of little burns of the bog, and a few other sort of wetter pooling areas. So the ducks are really good at clearing up all the slugs. They absolutely love roaming around the pasture. And one of their main jobs is keeping the ditches sort of clearish, but not running too fast because they um, they make sort of they puddle around and make little pools, which then they can wash in and things. So that's really good for 
conserving water not letting it flow too fast off the farm because i am aware that as an upland farmer a lot of water passes through but not that much of it stays here and i feel like that's one of my big responsibilities is to slow the flow through my ground to do my bit towards preventing flooding and the stuff downstream um so yeah they make these lovely little pools in the ditches and eat lots of slugs um, and then geese are really good for eating a lot of seed heads and of the grasses and at the moment they're really enjoying the dock and seeds and they also are grazers so they can be 100% grass fed and I can also graze them in amongst my little trees so they don't eat the little trees like the sheep would so the geese and the ducks are fitting in really really well to the overall functioning of the farm and I'm hoping that when I have a bigger flock of geese they might hopefully reduce the fluke that I have on the farm as well because that's quite a big health factor in my disease control in my sheep and cattle. Brilliant, thanks for that Catherine. So I'm fascinated by so much of what's going on here but I'm thinking specifically just now about how you get your products to market and how you're processing your your products. Um, so you could just fill a little bit of that gap in, that would be really good. Yeah, well I have only just started doing that. I've only put one hog to the abattoir so far and I just sold that locally around the village but it was a sort of a bit of a trial run for me to get to know my butcher get to know the abattoir sort of see how it would all work and also uh, yeah I didn't want to start too big (laughs) with yeah having too much meat that then I'm like oh no what do I do with all of this so uh, so yeah that was my sort of trial run which went well a uh, few things that i that yeah i think i didn't i think i didn't hang the carcass for long enough at the abattoir the butcher said that it could have had a few days longer and i basically didn't really tell anybody beforehand because my friend had made me a bit nervous about having tup taint in the meat because they wasn't castrated so i wanted to taste some first to check um, but it was delicious. <laughs> um, so then I just told we do a sort of community milk run um, around our village. So when I had the meat back from the butcher, then I just sort of told people that I was going around with the milk too anyway and sold a bit that way. So going forward from that is to advertise more. <laughs> but I would really like to sell it as locally as I can, just because, yeah, I, I really feel like especially in the highlands there are usually farmers in or very near communities and just having that connection to your local farm and your local from me as a farmer from my local community I just think is really special so as much as possible I'd like to keep to sort of pretty local sales although saying that I also do need to sell so it depends how that goes how far afield I look for customers I suppose the other thing is I'd really like to experiment with doing sort of preserving meat with charcuterie and um, things so I have some friends down in the Cairngorms who are they've got a little butchery and they are doing a lot of experimenting with their own meat I'm going to be selling them some of my meat and what experiments we could sort of work on together because they don't have sheep they've got cattle and pigs and yeah in developing different sort of things because I feel like sheep meat's missed out on a lot of the snazzing up that beef and pork get so that's something I'd really like to look into and then that would obviously um, increase shelf life as well with the product although I can sell meat frozen it's just I don't know just a different product really and then with the other thing I'll be selling is eggs because I've been rearing most of my birds from eggs I don't have really any that are laying yet so that will be next spring hopefully we should get some serious laying I did have one duck that was laying this spring that was a I could cope with eating one egg a day (laughs) and so yeah it wasn't really distributable for me for me I'm sitting here absolutely fascinated by what you're doing and I just hope that 
the um, listeners are inspired by what you're doing. And I love your your sort of ex- experiment and um, attitude to it all, do you know? And that takes away a lot of fear, surely, you know, for people. It's just actually try things and see how it works and be um, be brave to be creative. And yeah. Quite another question that I think everybody would find interesting to know would be, how easy was it to find affordable, workable land, farmland here in the Highlands? Well, so I was looking for about six months. Um, so I suppose in the grand scale of things, it's, it's not really that long. No. Um, but there wasn't loads of places that came up in that time. I was sort of I was limited a bit by location because I didn't want to be too far from things like the abattoir and stuff and I didn't want to be totally isolated. I really wanted to have a water source on the farm. There was a couple of places I looked at that didn't have any water and I didn't yeah that wasn't something I was up for and also having the sort of possibility for putting a house there as well because um, I couldn't afford anywhere with a dwelling so the potential for getting planning approved and stuff was, was important as well also because my dad's on the Black Isle the Black Isle is so expensive there's a lot of very expensive smaller pockets of ground and also anything that is being marketed at the sort of equine market is a lot more expensive as well. So there was a few places I looked at that I thought were massively overpriced. But yeah, I suppose I'd calculated that for the rough numbers of animals that I wanted to have, and I just used the Soil Association's nitrogen allowance uh, per acre, um, so I calculated that I would need at least 40 acres for the number of animals that I envisaged having and being a sort of viable enterprise. Yeah, I was I was very fortunate that I had a flat in London that I was able to sell at a very lucrative time. So I, I did have quite a bit of cash, but it still wasn't enough to buy a sort of farmhouse or anything like that. It was, you know... Because everybody wants a beautiful farmhouse without the farm. It just means that there's, yeah, trying to find somewhere to live and farm. You have to have a lot of money. And then if it, the farmhouse has already been separated, it can cause sort of problems for getting planning or just having a sort of weirdly shaped farm around a house that isn't, you know, part of the farm anymore. So, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to have one block of land there wasn't very many things that came up but I did find where I am relatively quickly so I I can't really complain I haven't had any issues with planning or anything so yeah I've been very fortunate in lots of ways it sounds like a really positive story doesn't it so are you planning to build a house on the farm yeah so at the moment I've got a sort of a little caravan and I stay at my boyfriend's and my dad's um, when it's really cold <laughs> uh, so yeah we've got planning permission to build a little sort of wooden cabin so it's it's not you know it's a fairly humble but it's got it's got everything we need it to have in it um, and my partner will be joining me it'll be nice to have him up here as well yeah the cabin should be built I don't know it was meant to be this summer but everything's got a bit weird so we don't, I'm not quite sure what will happen but it will be it'll be a relief to have somewhere I can get warm and dry things. <laughs> well, I, can, I can imagine. So would you say if there's been any challenges for you in terms of accessing land, money or the support that you need to um, implement your ideas in the model that you've chose? I, yeah, I was thinking about this. I would say the challenges that I've had haven't been particularly from other influences. Um, I think that there's just been a few things I hadn't realised would, I mean, it's, ba- it's mostly with taking so long. I thought I'd sort of within a year, like have a really firm idea of like how I wanted everything to look and where I wanted everything to go. But actually, I'm still not quite sure about a lot of things. And then if I'm not quite sure, I'm like, oh, I'll just leave that and not do it yet and just see if like my plans firm up a little bit more. I know there are lots of sort of new entrant grants and small farm grants and 
um, things like that but I haven't actually applied for any of them because in the end I felt like the things that they wanted you to do were just a bit too restrictive for how I want for my approach like I feel like all of the grants and help that is out there is designed around a very conventional farming system and I just didn't want to commit to doing things that way to get some money so my first winter I spent a lot of money on trees to sort of get my perimeter hedging and um, shelter belts in and I know there is a lot of support for planting trees but again not the way I wanted to and not with yeah there's various rules along the way that just well, didn't quite fit so yeah I've basically spent all my money now on trees so now I'm just trying to cobble together what I can from what I've got here so it's sort of reusing a lot of fence posts that I found on tumble down fences and germinating my own trees from seeds that I can harvest from nearby trees and also I'm getting more into the idea of not actually planting trees at all but just sowing seeds in a bit of disturbed ground and just letting them pop up themselves but that still does involve a lot of fencing I'd say at the moment fencing the cost of fencing is my main challenge and I don't know I swear the way I feel with all of the farming grants and subsidies is that I just wish that food was valued more and that you didn't need the subsidies that you could just run a business and be able to make the investment you need just from selling really good food um which i know is definitely not going to happen anytime soon but i just i'd love that to be where we head to instead of just farmers expecting to have access to all of this money because there isn't enough money in just selling good food it's really interesting and it then it shows you that you can't have a conversation about farming without having a conversation about the consumer and about education and about our whole fundamental relationship to food. The culture is cheap food. Yeah. People, a lot of people reject having to pay properly for their food. And I think there's just, there's a massive cultural change needed, isn't there? And that's, that's I guess, that's all, that's all I'm trying to say. And even us, at a very small scale, that's, just, that's the type of thing that you're trying to build into your community education programmes is that real food that is better for the planet, that's better for the producers, and is actually better for your own health, it's going to cost you money. Um, yeah. Another thing I would, I'm quite interested to know is what do you think that you're, that you're going to need or what sort of support do you think that would make that whole circle of what you're trying to do be easier and achievable? So I think at the moment the butchers just more skilled butchers would be would make everything a lot easier I think and I know that I'm not alone in finding that at the moment like I think with the Covid there has been a really big increase in people buying from butchers and local meat local producers but it's meant that the butchers have just become completely overwhelmed like I really struggled to book butcher time in and yeah it's just it's something that there isn't very much of and you know there's absolutely no way I will be able to build something my own facilities here and in a way I wouldn't really want to because I think you know not every farm needs a butchery just need access to a butchers so yeah the, the lack of butchers it's a massive thing and also I mean I'm aware that I'm very very lucky to have the Dingwall abattoir but if anything like if they were to close I have absolutely no idea where I would be able to get my animals slaughtered like Granton doesn't do sheep um so then I think the next nearest would be like way down in Aberdeenshire and I'm not even sure they do private kills like I'm not I just I would be totally lost if the abattoir shut down I mean I'm hoping that the re, like the increase in demand for local meat will mean that definitely won't happen but you just never know like there's I know a lot of 
small abattoirs in England have been closing over the last few years and even though there's campaigns to save them and there's their campaign for local abattoirs um, that it's just a lot of the regulations that are brought in are just completely unfeasible for very small facilities um, and when small farmers are selling local meat a little family abattoir is part of the story um, but if they can't survive yeah there's a big part of the story missing and it would just be such a shame to lose people who have you know a real pride and a real skill in their um, in their profession I feel really worried about that side of the meat production particularly because I think if you talk to somebody and they say they work in an abattoir it doesn't have the same sort of reaction from people as like saying you're a farmer for instance but it's all part of the same system and we all need each other to produce really amazing local food I think that's the thing I feel the most worried about well thanks for sharing that and to be honest you're not the um you're not the only local small farmer that I've heard with that same concern so that really that really is a significant issue here in the in the highlands that probably sort of answers the question that I would have had which would be what changes would you like to see to the local food system yeah well I suppose just a lot of the changes that I really wanted to see have sort of happened recently which has been really nice (laughs) like yeah just people pulling together supporting local producers finding ways to get that to communities um, where it isn't super local and how people having an appetite for good local food and um yeah having a bit more of a connection and i think that's something that's really could be the lining of the covid outbreak i'm hoping yeah i really hope that that appreciation for the producers that like got us through remains yeah I suppose I'd just love to just have a super local food system that's my little dream of being able to just feed people around us I like the sound of that um, so the Highland Good Food conversation has got one main question that we're hoping to answer through through the in different phases and that is how can we get more more local sustainable food on local dinner plates and you've given us lots of ideas here this morning about your thoughts and aspirations but is there anything else that you would want to add or is there or do you think that you can summarize that up in a sentence or two i think creating connections is probably the most important thing to do because when you feel connected to something you um, more likely to advocate for it and appreciate it and make an effort to engage with it so I suppose that's that would be the main thing I think just more connection and I also realize that convenience is a big factor as well like I think as producers we need to think about making it easy for people to like make good food choices and that isn't always an easy thing to work out how to do but I think it's important for the movement going forward. Yeah for sure. With your experience so far do you think being female has made it more challenging or do you think it's made it more exciting and with more opportunities because there's actually been this rise in in new female farmers? Yeah, just anything. It'd be really interesting for you to share if, if being a girl has had any impact on your experience so far. Oh, it's always hard to say, isn't it? Because I've, I've never not been a female farmer. Like, it's, <laughs> it's sort of, it's the only experience that I have. But yeah, like, there are, there is a rise in female farmers, which I think is absolutely fantastic, of course. And sometimes I think there's been a bit of a like oh I'm not sure like oh you know a bit of a young lassie not really doesn't know what she's doing but quite a lot of the time that is true like I do really appreciate the guidance and the help from other people who have been doing it a lot longer than me so maybe when I'm more experienced if that attitude is still there I might find that a bit more frustrating but at the moment I think it's really helpful (laughs) 
and you know a lot of people have taken me under their wing and been so kind and generous with their time and advice I was thinking about this when you emailed me the question and I was pondering about whether the rise in female farmers and the rise of regenerative agriculture have anything to do with each other like I think I don't want to generalize and be very gender binary and things but there does seem to be a bit more of a different way of looking at things from the female farmers I know maybe a bit less machinery focused and you know having definite things that need to be done at this time and in this way and yeah I just I think it's a really interesting possible link don't know what an amazing reflection last question and um, you can maybe remember um, if you listen to Rachel and I did our recording what her one wish was um, was for everyone to be growing on their front lawns so what would your one wish be for the Highland local food system by 2030 what would you like to see I would like everybody to know a farmer. Yeah, connect to somebody. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) It's been honestly so lovely to chat to you. And I can see you're so passionate about it and so thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more, Catherine. And I hope that if there's people listening to this that are interested in adapting their own upland practices or are interested in livestock upland farming here in the highlands that they feel inspired by what you're doing so how would people that want to find out more about what you're doing or how to access your products when you get there how would people find Catherine and find what's happening at Acapopoli Farm? So I have a website which is www.acapopolifarm.net and I have Instagram, which is just at Achpopuli Farm. So yeah, you can get in touch and email me. I've not got any like ordering facilities on the website because that's just not appropriate yet at my scale of things. But you can email me to find out what's available and what will be available at what point there. And then, yeah, my sort of social media is more like a little daily update on something that's been happening on the farm that day. <laughs> I won't be surprised, um, Catherine, if you end up with a stream of new followers after after that lovely story. So That would be lovely. <laughs> it really is great to chat to you. And now I'm going to chat to Clem Sanderson from the Soil Association to get her teeth a bit more into what mob grazing and regenerative agriculture actually is. I was wondering if you could please... Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about holistic plant grazing and regenerative agriculture. Just a sort of brief description, just so we can understand what those terms mean. Well, holistic plant grazing is um, based around holistic management, which is a decision making framework um, so that farmers and growers uh, and land managers can think differently about how they manage land, I guess, and work more with nature and natural ecosystem processes in order to improve soil and improve the water cycle and generally improve the way we relate to our land and improve biodiversity and all those things. Thanks for that. It was really interesting speaking to Catherine at Pockley Farm and she was telling us all about mob grazing. So could you tell us a little bit about what mob grazing actually is? Yeah, so mob grazing is trying to replicate the way natural herbivores used to travel across the land and graze with predators chasing them and they'd be in very large groups and they would graze and then move on and and areas would be allowed to to rest for a long period and regrow naturally. So mob grazing in a farming context is really about trying to recreate that natural process of grazing. So it's about keeping your livestock in, in an area for a shorter period of time than is normal in farming. Um, So maybe a day or two days or three days and then moving them to a new paddock and allowing that grass to recover and and fully recover itself. So it's kind of about keeping animals a bit closer together for a shorter amount of time with a very long rest period. And also it allows the grasses and herbs and everything in the pasture to grow taller. Um, So there's a lot more diversity uh, rather than just that first flush of growth of very green grass there'll be seed heads and flowers and lots of different plants in the mix there that the animals are grazing on. 
that makes me picture um, happy animals, um, which sort of makes me then lead on to the next question, which would be, what are the benefits of mob grazing to the farmer and to the animal? Well, I guess there's lots of benefits, but part of the work I'm doing at the moment with the Soil Association is trying to measure and, and really quantify those benefits. But in terms of farmer feedback on what they've seen on their farms, it's been about soil health improvements so one of the ways you can tell that is how quickly water drains away and how how resilient your grassland is to droughts and to heavy rainfall events so really trying to improve that soil structure and the organic matter in the soil so that you can deal with um, all the kinds of weather and climate change things that are happening at the moment so that's one thing around the soil um, and it's also can help profitability of a business because lots of farmers are able to extend their grazing season so rather than having to move them off as soon as it starts to get a bit wet in the in the autumn they're able to extend that potentially over the whole winter and keep keep animals outside in their natural environment for much longer and for in terms of animal health the the animals are getting much more choice of what they want to eat and there's a lot of minerals and benefits to to having a diverse diet so there's much more diversity in the pasture that that they can really benefit from and they get to also display more of their natural behaviors as well okay thanks for that next you've actually kind of touched on this already a little bit but livestock farmers they get a really tough time when we start talking about climate change so i was wondering if you could explain how regenerative agriculture can be part of the solution at addressing the climate and environmental crisis yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, yeah, so farming regeneratively is, is different from our conventional notions of farming. And it's really about changing priorities and, and thinking about what the goals of farming are. And it's a way to produce food at the same time as sharing land with a diverse range of species and supporting that diversity, as opposed to just thinking about how much yield there is, like how much can we produce in how efficiently as possible. It's about saying, well, regenerative farming is sharing the land. People are sharing it with their livestock and with wild animals and plant diversity and invertebrates and all of that. And that we can coexist in a in a good way that that supports our natural ecosystems and at the same time sequesters carbon. So rather than using lots of inputs and thinking about farming as a very carbon heavy kind of industry you know a lot of oil and a lot of machinery and a lot of detrimental pollution and rather than thinking of it that way regenerative agriculture is about thinking how we can mimic natural systems and actually produce food in a regenerative way improving soils from how they have been and coexist really and see ourselves as part of an ecosystem rather than as at the top of the chain, if you know what I mean, like where humans are controlling their environment, we're seeing ourselves more as part of it and how can we live together. What interest are you seeing in in this type of model of farming in the Highlands? Well, I'm working with farmers and crofters all over Scotland, um, but some of the members of the mob grazing group that, that I work with are in the Highlands. And I think it's, there's a real question around how we manage upland settings in Scotland because it's a really challenging place to farm. And, you know, the, the more the price goes down for the sheep price or whatever it is, I mean, farming's a tricky business. So, you know, there there may be more money often in forestry or in other types of activity and tourism. And ultimately, I think it's really important to find ways for farming to continue because I think there's real value culturally and historically in farming, but we need to do it in a way that is sensitive to our environment and that that does have a long future. So I guess mob grazing is brilliant because it, it works so well with things like agroforestry. So you can combine trees and areas designated for wildlife with you know managing livestock and still producing nutrient dense food that's really good for our health and creates a good livelihood so i think the real future in it is direct sales as well it's it's how can like Lynbrett Croft or like what Catherine's trying to do how can you sell really high quality produce that you've reared in quite challenging conditions, you know, how can you sell that direct to people so that you have a relationship with your customers and you trust each other and you're part of a local economy? And I guess that feels like the future to me is that direct sales route. 
Yeah. Catherine was speaking about the fact that she she's obviously exceptionally passionate about what she's doing, but she felt that the systems that are in place don't necessarily support what she's trying to do. Do you think that that's indicative of, of what's happening across across everywhere? And, and also, what do you think needs to be done at a sort of higher level to make this type of agriculture easier for people? Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> that's really hard um, <laughs> question. I mean, I think things things are changing. And um, there is a a real interest, I guess, from the Scottish government and from NGOs and environmental organisations to see how how farming in a really good way, in a regenerative way, could be incentivised. But we're definitely not there yet. And so, yeah, for Catherine, it's very hard as a new entrant to gain any of the benefits that long term farmers and farming businesses have in terms of subsidies. and, And also a lot of the environmental schemes have been very... I don't know, very prescriptive. So when you're looking at a whole farm system, when you're looking at managing your land holistically, most of the environmental schemes to give payments for that are not, you know, they're so specific and they won't necessarily fit the way you want to farm. So it is really tricky, but we need to be moving towards incentivizing greener farming methods and, and recognizing the value of regenerative agriculture. So, I mean, it's a it's a tricky one though I think there is movement in that direction but it's very slow and the farmers and crofters that are the pioneers of some of this practice are moving a lot faster than policymakers are yeah so the all we can do is like tell the amazing stories of what the farmers are doing and see what they're seeing on the ground and the difference they're seeing and the increase in biodiversity and the improvements in their soil and and all of that, the more they can tell that story, the more there's a reason to support that kind of farming. And it is a movement that's growing. Yeah, I guess a good start is just celebrating those good stories that are out there, isn't it? In relation to mob grazing, um, in relation to finding out a little bit more about regenerative agriculture or where they might find um, like-minded people, I, you were mentioning earlier about there being a mob grazing group. Where would be the best place to start? Yeah, so we're developing quite a few resources at the Soil Association um, on mob grazing and um, in particular trying to figure out how the group of farmers and crofters that we work with can share knowledge uh, with a wider group. So at the moment, the group meets in a way that they're sharing knowledge with each other and learning from each other, but we're trying to widen out the impact of that work. So you can visit the Soil Association website and look at the Scotland page and and find mob grazing there. Um, But in terms of resources, more widely, there's so many. Um, there's a lot of webinars being run by Carbon Calling, which is a really good um, regenerative farming space to look at. There's Agricology, which is another great tool. There's the Oxford Real Farming Conference. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things out there. I would say the farmers that I work with use YouTube a lot. There's a lot of different videos and resources. There's also the Savory Hub for the UK is 3LM and they run training courses in holistic management. So there's quite a there's quite a range of places to go to, but we are trying to develop our resources in Scotland around mob grazing specifically. So kind of watch the Soil Association website and we'll have a lot more going on there soon. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. And just to finish off, what would be your one wish going forward to see this become more more normal, more mainstream? There's so many things I'd wish for. Uh, well, I mean, I, I would love to farm myself. I, I would like to be regeneratively farming in Glasgow, which is where I live, um, and start an urban farm and have all the green spaces that are so disused in the city be turned to regenerative farming. And I think the main problem in a way with farming is that a lot of it's happening in places where people don't see very much, you know, in, in fairly underpopulated rural spaces. And then it means that urban populations have no connection to where their food comes from. They have no understanding of how it's produced. And they're then quite susceptible to messaging about how cows are causing climate change or because how would they know any different? They don't have any relationship to farming. They don't know where their milk comes from or, you know, it's not anyone's fault. It's the way our food system is has been set up. So I think we need to bring farming into urban contexts as well where there's a lot of people eating food and buying food and we just need to tell the story better and really look at the nuance I guess because a lot of things have been very simplified in the media and 
there's a lot of complexity to nature and to farming and we need to see that complexity and realize we we can't understand everything and rather than put everything in binary oppositional categories of you know there's in, there's the environment and then there's the harmful actions of people we need to figure out a much more complex relationship in how we live within our ecosystem there's not one way to do that there's many things need to happen but a, a reconnection to farming and food production is one way i think that sounds like a great start I'm such a strong believer in in the concept of land sharing because there's kind of two ideologies going on in agriculture, you know, in terms of policy and vision for the future. And there's the kind of land sparing model, which is intensify agriculture as much as possible on the best land and produce as much food as possible. And then, you know, allow other land to go much wilder and to, you know, accommodate nature and, and biodiversity. And I'm not really for that approach. Um, and neither is the Soil Association, which is really pushing for an agroecology agenda. And that's about land sharing. And that's what regenerative agriculture is about for me, because it's about saying, well, how do we incorporate trees and wildlife habitats and everything that we want to see into how we do our agricultural systems rather than one's over here and the other one's over here. And that's so important. And that's helped me to have a different perspective on farming. And I don't think it's something that a lot of people that aren't involved in regenerative agriculture see in that way. There's a lot of fear about trees and amongst farming communities, there's often, you know, that perception that, oh, the rewilders are going to want to come and take over this land. And, and, and there's a lot of potential conflict and there doesn't need to be that conflict because we can all coexist and still do our farming if we do it in a regenerative way and, and observing the natural patterns in nature. So I think that's what's really exciting about holistic plant grazing is that potential to mimic some of nature's patterns and to actually improve massively the way we do things. And it's a more enjoyable way to farm from what I can tell as well. It's 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 got the social aspect, you know, it's about quality of life and how you relate to your animals that you work with and how you relate to wildlife and it's about all those things so it doesn't have to be a it's it's farming or something else you know you you can incorporate and combine all those things and that's what's really exciting and that's an exciting note to finish on isn't it yeah (laughs) thank you to claim sanderson from the soil association for joining us on the highland good food podcast today and also thanks again to Catherine Sharp from Apocalypse Farm. I feel really inspired by what I've heard today. It is wonderful to hear about the different ways of working. This holistic approach benefits all, and I wonder if it'll become our new normal. I hope you enjoyed listening today. Please remember to subscribe to the highlandgoodfood.scot website, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hope you can join us next time.